And so as I shared that story with our team, it's it sort of became a thing that that's how we were going to measure our success. Because sometimes we would win. We would beat the pants off somebody. And I would ask them in the locker room after the game, do you think people walked to their car and wanted to be a better version of themselves? And they would go, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure we won then. And the same would be true on the other end. We might lose. And yeah. I would say, hey, what do you think? And they would say, yeah, people definitely did. Okay, then we won. And so it became this form of measurement that we could control. And so much in sports, the outcome is not completely under our control. That became something that could be consistent because we always could control the way that we played, the way that we handled ourselves when we played. Welcome to the Never Stop Getting Better podcast powered by Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are a one-size-fits-all helmet cover that help reduce impact for your players during practice. Coach Perry is a huge proponent of Guardian Caps after using them at Pearl High School, and it was one of the first football items he purchased when taking a job at Knicks. Caps are mandated by the NFL for O-line, D-line, linebackers, tight ends, and running backs, and utilized by over 270 colleges, over 3,000 high schools, and over 600 youth programs across the country. As helmets become more and more expensive, the Guardian Caps also do a great job of protecting your helmet investment. See the link in our show notes for more information on Guardian Caps. In each episode, John takes you on a journey of growth, learning, and endless improvement. Whether you're an athlete, coach, or someone simply just striving to get better, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, John Perry. Okay, today I have a fantastic guest that you're going to be um privileged to hear from her name is sherry cole sherry cole is a icon in women's basketball um took over at norman high school coached at norman high school for six years or so then took over at the university of oklahoma from norman high school coached there for 25 years went into the oklahoma women's hall of fame in 2007 inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 2016 and is absolutely amazing. While at um, Oklahoma University of, she had him in the NCAA tournament in year four um, in 2002, played for the national championship versus UConn, was in the final four appearances in 2009, 2010, and is absolutely fantastic. And also now is an Arthur, right? Rooted, rooted to rise, um, which I happened to read in only two sittings because it was absolutely fantastic. I'm a little bit jealous as I sit here. I don't know how you can be a great uh, coach, Hall of Fame coach, and be a great writer and all the other things that you're probably um, really good at. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Well, my first question is this. Is there anything you can't do? Like you go from <laughs> coaching Oklahoma and taking them, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit. I mean, Oklahoma women's basketball was not what it is today, right? When you took over the program, um, you know, but is there anything that you can't do? Because the book, I had no idea. Like I had, you know, we'd had you in our uh, mastermind group and interviewed you and it was fantastic, but I never knew you know, actually how intelligent you probably were, because I have to have a dictionary. Some of the words you use, I have to look them up to see what they mean. But is there anything that you can't do? Like, is there something that you're terrible at? Yeah, I can't cook. Just ask my family. <laughs> well, good. You can't be great at everything. Like, that's a physical impossibility. OK, yeah. 
This is the first question that I like to start with. What are some of the behavior skills that some of the best leaders that you've been around possess? Like, what are some of the things that they that they have in common? The ability to communicate with clarity would be at the top of the list, probably. Um, that's both being able to speak in a way that people understand and being able to hear in a way that you can utilize the information to do what you need to do next. So that combination of speaking and listening um, obviously compassion, you have to have compassion for people, um, and a willingness to build relationships. And that requires a whole host of other skill sets like vulnerability and integrity and trust. All those things go into creating, creating those networks, but the very best I've, I've been around have been, um, stellar communicators. And I think also, um, uh, I'm, trying to think of how to phrase this, uh, they give their people room to be great at what they do. So the opposite of micromanagement, uh, this idea of ownership, I trust you, I hired you, or in my case, I recruited you, you know, that those, uh, as it differs uh, for coaches, but uh, I, I hired you and, and I believe in you and you can do this. So go do it, go do it your way and, and make it great. And, and I think there's, um, a certain level of, of confidence, um, personal confidence that a leader has to have to be able to do that, to spread that ownership around that way. I love it. That's an awesome answer. And it gets into a couple of questions I have for you later. Um, my next question is this, you take over at Norman high school at approximately 25 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what behavior skills of some of the things you just listed, what were some of them that you didn't have or you were lacking that you had to go in search of because I mean that's pretty young to take over, you know, a high school basketball program and at a large school because I'm sure they're one of the larger or a six A school in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, it was the second largest school in the state at the time, and I was incredibly fortunate um, to be around some amazing coaches who were mentors for me. Um, starting with Max Dobson and Stephanie Finley, who I played for at Oklahoma Christian, but Dan Hayes, who coached the men's team at Oklahoma Christian. It's a tremendous influence on me. I literally went to Norman High School and set up my basketball program the way Coach Hayes set up his collegiate basketball program. I had watched him do that. His first year at OC was my freshman year at OC, and so I watched everything he did. I used to sit on the sideline and take notes at his practice after my practice was over, so I just, I did what I had watched him do. And then when I went to Norman High, uh, Tony Robinson was the boys basketball coach there and they were really, really good. And I had him there to bounce things off of, to watch, um, to um, learn from, um, to sort of gauge my practices by and my um, responses to wins and losses by. I just, there were lots of things um, that I was very fortunate, um, lots of people that, that, gave me, you know, just really a leg up uh, in terms of being able to take that job at such a young age and, and, and build that program. But the things I was not very good at, man, I took everything personally. Every loss was just about me, you know, like, yeah. it was, and if they don't play hard, it's about me. And if, if we, if we stink tonight, it's about me. And, and um, I had to get through all that, uh, the perspective that I think sometimes you just can't get until you get a little bit older. You kind of have to just grow your way into it. I know having children made a big impact. It, it sort of shifted right. my uh, perspective of things, obviously. 
Um, but I think, I, I think um, perspective sort of puts it, it's a big pot to pour it all into um, things from, you know, whether those high school kids played a bunch of sports or just focused on my sport all the time. Um, right. uh, the, the way we reacted, you know, or I reacted to wins and losses, more losses than wins. Um, I wasn't very good at all that. I was very emotional and um, I had to grow my way uh, into some of those traits, but the organizational things and the planning things, I just was so lucky to have been around such amazing people that I knew what to do when the opportunity arrived. That's awesome. You know, I think the good Lord blesses us with certain people in our life, you know, and I look back throughout my career, there were certain people put in my life that I was able to copy, you know, and just go do what they did. You know, I mean, had they not been in my life, I'd have never had that um, opportunity. That's sort of, that's sort of the premise of, of the book, by the way. And I know we'll talk about that later, but the power of the intersection of our lives with other people, if we really pause, you know, to think about it, like I clean out the garage, like my grandpa cleaned out the garage. And there are just things that we do that are because of the people we cross paths with. And I know we had talked before we went on the air about Rick Jones being uh, a mutual friend of both of us, a tremendous hall of fame football coach in Arkansas, Oklahoma before Arkansas and most recently Missouri. But uh, he was the football coach at Edmond high school, which was my first job out of college. I was the assistant girls basketball assistant volleyball coach at Edmond Memorial high school. And I taught six hours of English had zero time to spare but every opportunity I had to go watch Rick Jones lead a football practice, I did it. And I have scores of notes from that because I thought if this guy can organize 70 or 80 football players, surely I can organize 15 <laughs> on a basketball court. Right. And I just took copious notes. He was so good at what he did, the way he communicated with teachers. I was an English teacher of many of his players and the lines of communication and the way he shepherded those guys, I picked up on all of that. And when I went to Norman and ran my own program, I did a lot of those things because they were things I saw Rick Jones do it. Sure. Well, you know, I, I called, uh, there's a podcast coaching coordinator that a guy runs and I called him one time and I asked him, I said, who is the best coach in the state of Arkansas? He said, Rick Jones. I said, well, give me his cell phone number. So I got a cell phone number and this was probably, gosh, seven or eight years ago. And I just called him. I said, can I come over and visit? Because I knew he was fantastic. I mean, his track record spoke for himself. I had met him at a clinic in Orlando and I knew what type of man he was. So I just cultured up a relationship, you know, and I just started going over there and learning from the dude because I believe wholeheartedly he's probably one of the best high school football coaches that's graced this earth. You know, he's just fantastic. Um, in so many ways, and there's so much to learn from him. Okay, fast forward, you know, several years later, you get the head coaching job at Oklahoma at 31 years old, which is amazing. And I've heard you say this, you know, in today's society, that may not happen with everything going, you know, like it is, you go from where you had been extremely successful at Norman High School, so you had the opportunity to do that. But what did you have to learn because I'm going to say it accelerated the things that you needed to know from Norman high school to Oklahoma, you get that job. And then you sit down the first time and you think, Oh my gosh, here we go. Like what were the things that you had to learn fast to be able to get that program up and running? Well, mostly they were things that 
that didn't have to do with the court. Um, I felt so at ease when it was practice time. I thought, I know this, I know this. It's all that stuff up there. My office was on the second floor and, and that was where the big learning curve was. Uh, it was managing a budget. I I mean, I'd had a $7,000 budget at Norman high school and I was, you know, like what, um, I had several assistant coaches. I'd never had more than one and one and a half uh, assistant coaches at the high school level. So it was managing people. Um, it was, um, recruiting obviously. And, and, and you do that. I think everybody who's successful recruits, whether they know it or not. Um, I know as a high school basketball coach at Norman, I was recruiting, I was going to watch the middle school teams play and I was writing players notes after games. And I was going in the locker room to congratulate them. I was recruiting then, but, uh, the scale and scope of national recruiting, and um, just sort of the way all that has to hook together, um, that was a huge learning curve. Um, the biggest being, though, that that it was this CEO position, you know, like you were building a fan base and, and you were helping raise money and you were managing this big budget and you were designing community service programs. And you were you just had all these people, not necessarily coaches right under you, but you had trainers and sports information folks and there was just this second tier of people who were going to be very instrumental in the branding of your program and and in the actual day-to-day success and work and and the work and the success or and or failure of your program and so all these people were part of your management leadership responsibility so the web just grew super wide super fast and um there were a lot of learning curves, but, you know, uh, going back to people, uh, one of the first phone calls I made was to Roy Williams, who was coaching at the University of Kansas. And um, his assistant coach uh, was um, an Oklahoma guy and uh, Joe Holiday. And he had stopped me after a tournament one time, a boys and girls tournament. He was in town recruiting. And after the tournament, he stopped me in the hallway and said, you run secondary break better than we do. And I just was like, oh, my gosh, this is Joe Holiday. And we struck up a conversation, built a relationship. And so when I got the job at Oklahoma, I called Joe and said, I want to talk to Coach Williams. And I don't need to know his wrinkles of his secondary break. And I don't need to know any inbounds plays or how he drills his defense. I need to know how he runs his staff. I, I, I need to know what to tell all these people to do. I don't I don't know what, right. what the jobs are. And uh, Coach was amazing. He said, uh, and and I understand after running a major college basketball program, he didn't have much time, but in the summer, he went to each one of his camps. He visited each site in the city of Lawrence every day. I don't know. He had like 10 or 12 different gyms full of kids. And he said, if she wants to come up and just go with me to say hi to all those kids, then come on. So I drove to Lawrence and jumped in the car with him. And we went from gym to gym to gym. And I'd ask as many questions as I could on the short little drive. And then he'd go in and say hi to all the campers, come back out. And I had a yellow legal pad. I'm just writing down. And I literally built the way my my staff and office and program off the court ran around the things Coach Williams taught me. And um, I just think that that's such an important, like, we sometimes think There's, this guy's so successful. He's not going to tell me anything. Uh, the more successful people are, the more willing they are to share most of the no time. Doubt. And he was just amazing. And we built an incredible friendship that we have to this day. 
as a result of that. But um, I guess if I were going to say anything about that, it would be when you find yourself with something that feels too big to chew, uh, as this job was just enormous, you just ask people who are doing it in a way that you admire and they'll help you and you can fight your way through it. And it was, it was fun. It was much like publishing my book. That was like, so I had no idea. I knew how to write. I didn't know how to publish a book and figuring right. all of that out was such a learning curve. And you just talk to people whose work you admire and find your way through. Yeah. I have found and often said that the best people in any profession is more than willing to share because deep down inside, they're going to share because they serve a bigger purpose. You know, like they do want to, it's not just basketball. It's not just football. It is, you know, serving people, but they also know that the majority of people aren't going to be good enough to be able to beat them anyway. So they share anyway, you know, like that's George Allen right there. He used to no say doubt. legendary football coach used to say, I'll tell anybody what I do because they're not going to be able to do it as well as I do. No so doubt about a level it. of confidence that, you know, goes alongside of that competence that makes people willing to share. And I admire folks that do that. No doubt about it. All right. People, um, you know, one of the most important parts of any organization are the people that you pull onto the bus. You know, what type of people were you looking for, whether that was, you know, your assistant coaches, whether that was the type of players that you were recruiting, you know, like what type of person did you want in the organization? Well, uh, obviously there are core character traits. Uh, you, when you say good humans, that can mean a lot of different things, sure. but, but people who speak the, the truth and stand up for what they believe in, people who are passionate about the game. I used to say that, that as far as players and coaches go, it, it wasn't so much that, we had to agree on everything, but we had to believe that the game should be played a certain way. If I, if we had a common crossover, if we had a point where we all agreed that this is how the game should be played. And I don't mean strategically. I mean, from an effort standpoint, from a joy standpoint, from a, a connection, a unity standpoint, um, then we, we would get along famously. And that was pretty much the way it went throughout the 25 years at Oklahoma Lots of people who believed that um, creating the whole uh, was more important than the sum of the parts and people who believed in diving on the floor after loose balls and high fiving and celebrating together and being about a cause greater than themselves. If all of those core things could uh, were in common, then the other stuff we could figure out and we could find our way through. So we didn't have to be alike. We didn't have to all be the same, but we had to have at our core that commonality and that belief in what a team is and how the game should be played. Awesome. Let me, let me read you this, this sentence out of your book. Cause I thought, you know, like I thought it was fabulous and you kind of mentioned it. I always challenged our team to play in such a way that people walking to their cars when the game was over would say to themselves, I want to be a better me. You know, like, I think that speaks to the type of person, the type of individual you wanted on the team. You know, now, what does that look like? You know, like, what does that look like on a basketball court that makes me want to walk back to my car and say, I want to be better? I think it's those things that um, every man can do. It's the uh, diving on the floor after a loose ball. It's helping your teammate up when they take a charge. It's everybody 
standing and touching a player when they come out of the game. It's being the first team to sprint to the huddle and the first and the team to sprint from the huddle back to the court after a timeout. It's pointing to the guy who passed you the ball to share the credit of the moment when you score. It's all of those things that make people who are watching go, Oh, that's cool. I feel that in my heart. I want, I want, I'd love to be a part of that. I want to make whatever I'm a part of feel like that. And, you know, we, we sort of, I guess I stumbled upon that ritual, if you want to call it that, um, with our team, uh, Early in, in our years at Oklahoma, I got a, an email. This was before cell phones were everywhere and, and you know, people tweeted and all that business. I got an email from a woman who had been to our game. And this is when we were building. I think it was our second or third year. And we were we were having a lot more private victories than we were having public ones. But we were getting closer and closer uh, to winning games and, and playing in the way that, that we wanted to. And she was going, this woman who emailed me was undergoing cancer treatment. And she said that she had not wanted to go to the game. She didn't feel up to it. She wanted to go, but she didn't feel up to it after her treatment. And then she finally just decided I'm going to go to the game. So she went to the game and she said when she was walking to her car, she thought I can do this tomorrow. And when, when she got in the car to come to the game, she wasn't sure that she could do the treatment the next day. But when she got in the car after our game, she said, I can do this. And I just want you to know that, your team gave me what I needed to get through the rest of my week. And so as I shared that story with our team, it's, it sort of became a thing that that's how we were going to measure our success because sometimes we would win. We would beat the pants off somebody. And I would ask them in the locker room after the game, do you think people walked to their car and wanted to be a better version of themselves? And they would go, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure we won then. And the same would be true on the other end. We might lose. And yeah. I would say, hey, what do you think? And they would say, yeah, people definitely did. Okay, then we won. And so it became this form of measurement that we could control. And so much in sports, the outcome is not completely under our control. That became something that could be consistent because we always could control the way that we played, the way that we handled ourselves when we played. I think it's awesome. One of my favorite coaches ever is John Wooden. I've probably read every John Wooden book that ever existed, you know, and John Wooden never much talked about the scoreboard. It wasn't, you know, it was about the process. So, you know, like, how did you with, you know, with high school kids and college kids, it's hard because the scoreboard is there. I mean, it's, you know, it's, and it's, you know, a large reason why people come to the ball game, but how did you get them to dial in on, you know, playing the game in a manner that, you know, wanted to make other people better and not focusing on the scoreboard. Were there certain things that you did that, you know, um, allowed them to play that way without the worry of the scoreboard? Sure. I can't say that we always did, though. We tried and that was our goal, but I can't say that we always did. Um, little things like what we chose to celebrate, uh, what we as a coaching staff paid attention to, what we made a big deal of, what we didn't make a big deal of, the way we practiced. Um setting up situations that allowed players to show off those character traits that are the things that we're talking about. Um, setting up drills where you take charges and you practice celebrating uh, the player that takes the charge. Um, the things you talk about in the locker room, things you put on the walls, things you say in the press room afterward. Um, lots of little things. And then I think too, those individual conversations with players where you talk about um, 
you know, the, the things that really matter, the, the impact that they're making, that's not going to be on the front page of the newspaper or talked about on talk radio the next day. Um, but those things that really last. Sure. Well, and when, and when you can get them to play together for each other and not for, you know, the score life's better for everybody, you know, no question, but it's incredibly hard to do. It Easy is to talk about and incredibly hard to do. And we wouldn't have been able to do it without certain team leaders, players who bought in with every fiber of their being. And it becomes contagious when it, when it's a player who is believing it and embodying it. And I can think through the years of just this player from this team, this player from that team who really made it happen. And we, we don't ever get the thing off the ground without a kid named Tina Taylor, who was a senior that I inherited and, um, half the team quit and she stayed and she believed in me and believed in what I was teaching. And even when she didn't always understand, she just did the things that allowed the young players to connect to her. And then there was just this contagious foundation built. Uh, we don't, we don't ever get to where we are without Tina, but nobody knows about Tina. You, you know, about, you know, Daniel Robinson and Courtney Paris and Stacy Dales and Lanisha Caulfield. You don't ever hear about Tina, but without her, it's Oklahoma basketball is not what it is today. So uh, there are those people. Carolyn Winchester was a walk on that became a captain because she so embodied all the things that we stood for as a program. So you just have those people. And as you and I are talking, you're probably thinking about a lot of kids that you've had that you could just name off. Sure. And I'm thinking of them as well. Um, those standard bearers, if you will, within our program who who really make it happen. Well, when, when I was what I was thinking about was one of the players in your book that stood out to me that you really talked about was P Dub. <laughs> P Dub was one of my favorites. Like that was was that the first signee? She was my very first signee, very first signee, and a remarkable human and an uncanny basketball player because she was just she was six foot playing the post position and. Not particularly fast, but she could go out on the perimeter. Not, she wasn't even particular. She wasn't fast at all. Not particularly. She wasn't fast at all. Um, she wouldn't mind me telling you that either because she'd agree. But she just had an uncanny way of getting things done, and she so bought in to the vision. And I think so rare, um, especially now, maybe now more than in the past, for a kid to just um, be able to see what you're drawing up um, that doesn't have any factual basis yet to have that faith and that confidence that a, you can get it done, but a one is that she's good enough to help you get it done. And I think there's a lot of bravado in kids these days. That's not real. And um, Felicia just had that belief in her soul that if there was something she needed to do, she could figure out how to do it. And if she could figure out how to do it, then we could be what, I thought we could be. And so there was just this real positive chain uh, reaction there that began from me to her and her to her teammates. And um, she really is the foundation. I mean, she is just, she was so special. And, and I had no idea at the time how rare and special she was. That was a God thing. There's no, you know, people talk about God winks. Um, that yeah. was definitely a God wink, me finding her. Well, let me ask you this, because I heard Nick Saban this year at the Alabama Clinic use this analogy 
that when they go to the lake, him and Miss Terry go to the lake, that Miss Terry's going to go to the grocery store and she's going to pick up mustard for the hamburgers and hot dogs, but she's not going to pick up ketchup. So they're going to get home. They're going to do the cookout and they're going to have hamburgers and hot dogs. And there's going to be four things of mustard um, on the counter, but there's going to be no ketchup because she did not make a list when she went to the grocery store. So she just picked up what she thought they needed. So his point was, my coaches have a unique list when they go out recruiting. We, you know, this is what we're, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're going to get. So, you know, like in your recruiting process, I know this has got to be hard because I, I battle this as a high school coach, you know, like sometimes college coaches cannot see the heart of a kid or it's hard to see the heart, the, the, you know, like the things you said was a God wink about P-Dub was, some of the things that you can't measure, you know, like, and that's really hard for a college coach, you know, and it's getting harder, you know, like what were some of the things and how hard was that to locate those special players? Some of that has to be skill. There's got to be a little bit of skill in finding them on top of, you know, the good Lord putting that, you know, in, in your, you know, in your side and, you know, pushing you that way. But like, how did y'all, you know, go about recruiting and was, was that really hard to do? It was very hard to do. I think um, number one on the list is making sure that assistant coaches know you and know exactly what you want, that there is a, a a very clear picture of the kind of kid that can be most successful in your program, um, that you will love coaching, that will love co- playing for you, that, that will fit. I think fit is uh, often overlooked when it comes to recruiting. But it's uh, it's interesting in that, the ways that we used to measure those things that you're talking about, or at least maybe not measure, but get a taste of those things that you're talking about uh, were through conversations on the telephone. They were through home visits, sitting in a player's home and watching them interact with their parents. I could tell so much about the coachability of a kid by the respect or lack thereof that they showed for their parents when we were in their home. Um, Those phone conversations where you would ask questions Uh, Those things have been replaced now by. Guardian caps are lightweight, one size fits all football helmet covers for practice. They reduce 20 to 33% of the impact, depending on the speed and the location. Great for the repetitive sub-concussive blows that add up throughout the week. Also great for body blows used by Clemson, Penn State, Washington, Oklahoma, 150 other colleges, and about 2,000 high schools across the country. Also protect that helmet. If your helmets are getting beat up at the end of the year, Guardian Caps can help protect that helmet investment. Social media posts and text messages that don't reveal the kinds of things that can only be revealed in voice-to-voice or eyeball-to-eyeball. And so I think it got harder and harder through the years to ascertain uh, what kids were really like as humans. Uh, But when when it came to evaluating the talent, uh, one of the things we always did was arrive early. We wanted to get wherever the game was taking place and watch the kid warm up, uh, watch the kid come in the gym. Uh, How did they handle themselves? How did they interact with others? And then I probably spent as much time, and and I could do this as the head coach. It was part of my job as the head coach. My assistant coaches coaches would say, here are five players who are fantastic shooting guards. I'd already know that all five of them could really play. My job was to figure out which one fit best for us. And so 
I watched them off the court as much as I watched them on when, when they came out and they sat on the bench, how did they handle themselves? If, if they had a, if their team experienced a bad call, how did they conduct themselves when their coach is trying to talk to them on the side? Are they listening? What's their body language like? Um, I watched all those things before and after every bit as much as I watched the game, because I think that that's when your true colors come out. Um, and, and I learned a lot that way sure. for sure. Um, but it's ultimately um, trying to find out um, players who are, players who were alive were always just, I was, I was drawn to them like a magnet. Like, like I, I wanted them to be, and that sounds so trite, uh, we're all alive. But by that, I mean, just people who kids who woke up every day and were excited about something. And, and even if basketball wasn't their main thing to be fired up about life and the opportunity to learn, to be curious, to, um, to interact with people, to make a difference. Um, those kinds of kids lit me up. And and I wanted those to be a part of our program because I knew we could help them be successful. That's awesome. I, there was a – I took my quarterbacks to a quarterback training at Washington High School in Washington, Oklahoma, okay? Little, 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 you know, not, not a right. real large school. Road. Yes, right down the road, okay? Well, they have a quarterback at Washington High School that's phenomenal. And just from our one day at a camp over there, like when we walked in, this kid, you know, and there were 10 quarterbacks there. This kid walked straight up, introduced himself to me, my coaches, our, you know, like didn't have to, you know, but like his joy and his demeanor and his just stood out. Like it was different than everybody else, you know, and that's, I don't know, there's just, you can tell. And one of the, one of the great things you have going is that blog you have at Sherry cold.com i guess that comes out every tuesday, tuesday. yeah mm-hmm. every tuesday well on that blog you know like you you write one that i want you to share the story of gino helping you learn what a coach is um needed for right but at the bottom of that you have attached that video of him talking about body language and it's phenomenal because man, you can tell a ton from you know um going to uh, I work with our, at our high school, I work with the girls basketball program as far as do some of the like mental performance stuff. So I'll go early and I'll stay late and I want to see, I want to see how they interact with each other. I want to see, you know, all that stuff matters. Okay. Well, you called Gino one time and I guess you're kind of down in the dumps and things aren't going exactly the way you want them to go. And Gino kind of gives you a wake up call because he tells you the responsibility or the role of a coach. What did, what did he tell you? Well, I was feeling sorry for myself is what I was doing. And I was wanting a little pep talk. I was wanting somebody to say, oh, yeah, bless your heart. And um, I I, I know Gino's not where you go to get bless your heart. I'll promise you that right now. Um, Love him dearly, but that's not that's not what you go for. Um, But I just went through the laundry list of all the things that were just wrong. And everybody needed something from me. And he just said, you know what your job is? And I was just like, yeah, tell me, you know, and it's going to be great. And he said, your job is to be whatever they need for you to be. And that's when the air went out of my balloon. I was like, "Uh oh, this is going to go south. This is not going to be the soft <laughs> head I had wanted. And he said, if your job is to, if they, if what they need is discipline, discipline them. If what they need is um, a coach, then coach them. If what they need is a cheerleader, then cheer for them. Whatever they need is it's your job to, to provide it. And, um, you know, I hung up the phone and thought, 
dang it, he's so right. And I'm so embarrassed. And um, I never, ever forgot that. And, you know, you, you talk about the the clip that I put at the end of the blog where he's talking about body language. And I think it was Stewie that he's talking about in the clip um, uh, about how she looked on the bench and she wasn't going to start the next game because of the way she handled herself on the bench. And um, several years ago, uh, I in the film room after a competition, the video clips that I showed were of me on the sideline showing poor body language. And I made a point to our guys that like, how are you supposed to perform on the next play when I do this on the last play, you know, things like throw my hands up like, sure. sit back in the chair, the things we do as coaches. And I was so mortified when I was watching the film of that game that it stuck out to me. And I thought, um, this is a great opportunity to show them how important it is because I know they felt it and I think they appreciated it and we all got better at our body language as a result of that but it's one of those things that we can control and sometimes we give our power away don't pay any attention to it and it can clip at our heels yes how how powerful would it be if we recorded all coaches and went back and broke down the video like we do our players you know like what if you put a camera on me and you know, all my coaches and you carried it throughout the day. And then you went back and broke down their body language, their tone, their, you know, like everything that they did, we'd probably be better off, honestly, because we, we will, we will break down a kid in a heartbeat. All right. Let me ask you about a sentence in your book. Okay. He lived every day as a tortured soul. Talking about Gino, what does that mean? Um, That he had a standard of excellence that was, immovable and oftentimes unrealistic. Um, and so whatever happened, uh, he always wanted it to be better. So there yeah. was a dissatisfaction. Um, and, and I think a lot of high achievers, I'm talking about him like he's dead. He's not dead. He's alive. He's coaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he still has all that. But I think a lot of really, really high achievers, the elite of the elite, live much of their lives a tortured soul because um, they're always seeing the things that could be better and the things yep. that, that they need to tweak or um, um, completely reestablish or they're, they're all, there's just, it's never enough. And I think that coaches have to be very careful that, um, that we don't punish ourselves um, unnecessarily sometimes, not that, I mean, you, you have to, that's how you get great is you look at all the things that aren't quite good enough or could be better. Um, but there's also a balance there of really appreciating something when it is good, uh, a performance or a play or a sequence or a season, sure. uh, that is that there's a lot of good stuff there. And I think we have to be careful, uh, to not over-focus on, on the not quite so good another another human you are describing without knowing it probably or you probably do but being from mississippi you know nick saban to me could be one of the most miserable human beings in the world now i understand the success and he is in my in my lifetime in my sport probably the greatest college football coach ever okay but like he i'm the, the tortured soul thing, just I wrote it beside in the book. I put Nick Saban because, you know, I've spent so much time going over there this year. A guy asked him from the audience, you know, at first night he always talks and takes questions. And the guy said, 
okay, coach, like, why do you coach? Like, you have all the money you can spend. You've won all the games you can win. Like, like, why do you do it? Why don't you just chill out? You know, and he ain't got no chill out. Like, there is, like, he, he loves being miserable, you know, and you watch him win a, win a national championship and you get this little smile. But I will guarantee you on the walk back to the locker room, he's already thinking about, I got to get this recruit. I got, and I don't know, man, like that just, to me, that seems like torture. It really does, you know, without them knowing it, you know, it does seem kind of torturous. So that kind of stuck out to me. Let me ask you a couple. I know we're, we're, we're getting close. Let me, a couple of uh, things that I run across that I just want to know more about the six word memoirs. What is that? Well, it, there's a couple of books about it. I think, um, I don't even remember how I ran across it, but a six word memoir is basically um, your uh, motto or encapsulation of your personality or your team or your season or a moment in time. It could be anything, but it's, it's just six words that um, define you, maybe not define you. It's not the right word, but uh, maybe form an umbrella for uh, who you are, or what you're about. And um, I had my team do that one year in the off season and uh, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's a lot easier to write a page or a paragraph than it is to to get six words together. Sure. Um, but we did that um, just about the time that my assistant coach was diagnosed with cancer, right. and it dovetailed into uh, a very cool pink ladder that uh, still sits in the locker room, I hope, uh, at the university. Sure. So they can be pretty powerful. And the I think the Probably the benefits of the six word memoir, um, and I've done them at different times in my life about different things, is they force you to clarity. You really have to reflect for a bit and think about where you are and what you want and how you want to frame a thing. But then they also become self-fulfilling prophecies sure. and they're um, they're they're tidy enough that you can uh, stick those words on a mirror or on that posted on your computer screen or your bookshelf. And it can be a reminder of what you really want. And so um, uh, they're pretty powerful and some are funny. I mean, the book I have of them is just a collection of just all these six word uh, memoirs and some of them are clever and some of them are eerie and some of them are funny and uh, some of them are inspirational. So there are a lot of ways to do it, but it's a pretty neat exercise. Yeah. I thought that looked um, very interesting. The next thought is what's your take the power of questions, you know, I find this amazing because I think we in the coaching world, we tell, 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 we tell them everything. Mm -hmm. And then when things go south, we'll tell them something else. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I think, you know, what I, what I've heard you say about the power of questions was awesome. Like what, what's that about? Well, I think, first of all, I learned it too late. Like I, I wish I had known it when I started coaching. Sure because I was a, a tremendous teller. I was so good at it. I had to tell them everything. Right. Um, but when you ask questions, a couple of things happen. Number one, that's where understanding comes from. It's not a command. It's a, it's an understanding of why a thing matters. When you ask the question to, to a player, to an assistant coach, to whomever, there's a process that they have to go through to come up with an answer. And it's that process that is the gold mine. The second piece of it is that's what you remember. Because when you have to scratch and claw to come up with something, when you're really trying to wrestle in a, what is the right answer here? It builds a rut in your brain. 
And that's a place you can go back to. And so it makes you smarter, longer about more things. Just the fact that you have to grapple with the answer. Now, there are a couple of things that I had to learn about it when when teaching with my team. Number one is patience, because, you know, as as tellers do it like this, just and boom, boom, boom. And we're like, you know, like a little military band. We can do whatever. So when you ask a question, there's time and you got to have some patience if they don't exactly get the drift of what you're asking. You got to massage it and ask a follow-up question, another follow-up question. So there's some patience involved. There's also some um, order to it. We'll all have, you have teams, I have teams, you know the player that's going to answer every question if you pose it. So (laughs) you learn to, and if you ask a particular player, if I say, john and then i say the question then the other 15 people aren't paying attention because it's john's job if i don't say john then shelly's going to jump out and answer every single time because she's on her toes so you learn to present the question and then put a player's name with it so that you can draw everybody in and everybody has an opportunity to get involved with that but there's just such ownership that accompanies having to find the answer to a question And that ownership leads to confidence, which leads to curiosity. The more confident you are, the more willing you are to explore things. And that just makes your whole team better. And it is, in my opinion, um, the thing I missed the most early on in my coaching career. I wish I had learned how to do it earlier. And there is an art to it. You've got to figure out, um, you know, when, when I first started demanding that my assistant coaches ask questions, um, they would initially come up with yes, no questions. And, and I mean, those were just the ones that would pop right. out. And so you have to train yourself beyond that to those questions that cause players to search for a little bit. And, um, I think it's great too to, to not always have a right answer. No doubt. Know? And, and where that really sort of came full circle for us was I would ask my players and we ran a motion offense predominantly, which is a lot of freedom and a lot of thinking has a super high ceiling, but can also be frustrating for kids who can't make decisions or who aren't very confident in what they do. And I would say, sometimes I blow the whistle and say, okay, why did you make that cut? And you know, a kid looks at you terrified, like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, no. And I didn't say it was wrong. I want to know why you made that cut. If they can tell me why they made it, I'm cool with it, whatever their reason is. But to say, I don't know, isn't okay. You got to have a reason for what you do. And that's sort of the backbone of how we taught and how we practiced and how we wanted to play when none of us are always going to be right. I'm not always going to call the right play. You're not always going to move the right direction for a rebound. There's just got to be a reason for what we do and to understand that and to think through that, which is intentionality, which, you know, just to go totally fourth level here. If, if there's anything that we want our athletes to take away from participation at sport, it's the power of intentionality. If you set your intentions, you can wow. make your days and your weeks and your months and your life the way you want them to be. Sure. Not that you have complete control because none of us do, but the way we respond to things is always within our control. And that's intentionality. That's awesome. That's awesome. What a great answer. All right. Next question. Thought cards. Thought at, the conclusion cards. Of a, at the conclusion of a game. Oh, okay. Oh. So post-game thoughts. Yep. yep. Um, they were simple little pieces of paper where after every game, uh, they had uh, questions to answer. Number one, uh, what went well and why? And number two, what can we do better and how? 
And um, that was to be answered. I had them draw a column that was to be answered personally. And from a team standpoint, it was not to be a um, reflection, a, a, bl a blow by blow of the game. I don't need a synopsis of the game. I watched it. You watched it. We were all there. I want to know what went well specifically and why and what can we do better and how. And it served purposes that I didn't imagine at the outset. I thought it would um, give me some information moving forward to in terms of what they understood. I thought it would um, force them to reflect on little things that occurred during the game and not just the final score. But what I discovered was it helped me know where each individual player was because I could tell by the way they wrote their answers on the piece of paper, where they were mentally or emotionally, by how many words they used or didn't use, by the way their handwriting went across the page, up or down, by how big the letters were or how small. Sometimes players would write a book they'd need to write on the backside. Sometimes they would write blocking out, rebounding. And they knew that that's not, you know, so I would know where they were, which helped sure. me meet them there the next day and try to move them forward. You know, we make assumptions sometimes that this player's angry because they didn't get in the game. That may not be the case at all. Or or this kid, you know, feels like she didn't get to play and, and she should have. And maybe that's the case and maybe it's not. Maybe a kid played 30 minutes and you pulled them one time and it destroyed them. And they think right. that you just, you don't know. You make all these assumptions. And these post-game thoughts really helped me kind of figure out where they were. And um, they were a staple to what we did. Yeah, we will we will implement those, I promise you, because we will sometimes do it after a loss intentionally, but I think doing it after every game would be huge. All right, let's get to the book real quick. Rooted to Rise. It's absolutely awesome. It's about some of the most influential people in your life, and it's so well written, man. Like, my wife's not a reader, and, like, I'm, I told her, like, you got to read this book. Like, so she started reading it and absolutely loved it. So everybody needs to stop, go right now. You can order it on Amazon. I know, you know, it's where I got mine. It is absolutely fantastic. What about the process of writing a book? How difficult was that? How strange was that? You know, because it's absolutely wonderful. Did you have help well, with that? Thank you. I did not have any help with that. Um, I have written my entire life and I was an English major and taught English at the high school level. Um, writing is a very big part of what makes me happy. And it's what a thing that I use throughout my career to understand when I was confused about something or trying to work my way through something or having a hard time, writing was the cathartic practice that helped me clarify uh, where I was and what I wanted to do about it. Um, so it, it sort of, um, from that vantage point, came very naturally, the writing of it did. Um, the publishing part was a whole different ball of wax. Okay. Uh, I didn't know how to do any of that. And um, I did have an editor uh, who was fantastic, who helped. She was just tremendous because um, she didn't try to change my voice. Uh, she would simply, much like we were just talking about uh, in practice, where I would ask players questions, she would ask me questions. Is this the way you want this to land? This is how it landed on me. Sure. Is there another word that might be better here? She was just a fantastic, I call her my rudder. She was just a fantastic rudder for the, for the writing. Um, and also she was not a basketball person, which is, was such a blessing because I had, I had made all these assumptions that people understood 
sure. basketball. Like the uh, perfect example is I had a sentence that said she went for 25 and 12. And to me as a basketball coach, you say that all the time. Oh my God, he went for 25 and 12. And she's like, 25 and 12, what? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so um, she really helped all of that to clarify sure. all of that. But the process itself um, was people ask me, how long did it take you? Well, I don't know because I had, I don't know, six or seven stories written in just a basket in my office that I'd never done anything with. I had um, sentences on pieces of paper, the story about Whitney Hand, the chapter is spreader of joy. I had one sentence on a piece of paper that I had scratched out at like three in the morning, the night she tore her last ACL. That piece of paper, looking at that sentence I had scratched out, took me back to her career and I formed that story from that. So it's hard to say how long it all took, Um, but it was an amazing process to be a part of. Um, I did a title workshop with um, a lady who really helped synthesize the whole thing by, again, the questions that she asked, what are the common threads of the stories? How do you see them fitting together? Um, What are the most common traits of these people that you, your life is intersected with? And those different questions is what helped me find my way to the metaphor that wraps around the book, which is the metaphor of the redwood tree. So it was fantastic. I enjoyed every bit of it because writing is my happy place and uh, I'm working on a secondary one, but we'll see. I was going to ask, there's gotta be more, you know, like there's just gotta be, cause it's so good. And you know, that is something that you love to do. All right. Last question. Sherry Cole, like what makes you happy? You are happy when? Well, I'm happy when the people I care about most are safe. We'll start there. Yep. Um, I'm happy when I'm with my family. Uh, I'm happy when I'm wrestling with words, um, stringing sentences together. I'm happy in my garden. I love flower gardening. Uh, I always, not vegetable gardening. I have to throw the flower in there. Not vegetable gardening. I have flowers <laughs> everywhere. Flowers and plants. Um I'm happy uh, after a strong workout. Uh, I love to play tennis and um, do that often now. And I'm happy after that. Uh, I'm happy when I hear acapella music. Um, uh, I have a pretty good life. So I'm happy a lot of the time. Well, that is absolutely awesome. I sure appreciate you doing me the honor. Um, If you're listening, please go to sherrycole.com jump on the blog. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can get it every Tuesday. It's fantastic. And most definitely get the book Rooted to Rise. It is phenomenal. You'll read it. I read it in two sittings, but you might read it in one. I appreciate you coming on. It's absolutely fantastic. Such an honor to get to chat with you, a living legend. Um, I'm so honored. Um, Thank you very much. Well, thank you. And thank you for all the good you're putting out into the world and for coaching those kids the way you do. I firmly believe coaches do God's work. So uh, the best to you.